Welcome to Hollywood and Beyond Podcast with Cincinnati host Stephen Brittingham. Experience meaningful and in-depth interviews with Hollywood's most interesting people. Enjoy the show. Hi, Stephen. This is Emily Proctor calling you. Hi, Stephen. It's Melissa Anderson calling you. Mr. Brittingham, this is Bill Duke. How are you, sir? Stephen, this is Patrick Duffy. Welcome to Hollywood and Beyond Podcast. Your home for meaningful and in-depth interviews. For more guest and show news, please visit hollywoodbeyond.net. You can receive all the latest episodes of Hollywood and Beyond with Stephen Brittingham delivered to your favorite listening device by subscribing to the show on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or whatever happens to be your favorite podcast listening service. Don't miss out. Tune in. Hi, friends and listeners. This is host Stephen Brittingham. Do you happen to have a question or a comment for me? Or perhaps you feel that you might make an interesting guest here on Hollywood and Beyond. Whatever your reason may be, please feel free to contact me anytime directly at the show's official email address. That would be Hollywood and Beyond Show at gmail.com. That is Hollywood and Beyond Show at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you soon. The following scene is courteous of CBS and The Young and the Restless. I deserve your scorn, your outrage, your hatred. All of that is justified, but I think deep down inside, you were as conflicted as I am. There is still something between us, Victoria. Let's get out of here. Leave your family, leave this town, and start over. I am starting over. But not with you. The only thing left to say is, uh, I'm sorry. Hello, friends and listeners. I am your host, actor and writer, Stephen Brittingham. Welcome to Hollywood and Beyond Podcast. Your home for meaningful and in-depth interviews and conversations. My special guest today gave a memorable performance as Joshua Lewis for over a remarkable 28-year run on Guiding Light, resulting in two well-deserved daytime Emmy nominations for Outstanding Lead Actor in a Drama Series. Earlier this year, Robert joined The Young and the Restless, as businessman Ashlyn Locke, taking over the role from Richard Berge. His time in Genoa City resulted in another impressive performance, which consisted of a mysterious past and devious schemes, a romance with Victoria Newman, squaring off with the powerful Victor Newman, a touching relationship with a young boy he thought of as his own, and a very intense exit, resulting in Ashlyn's demise. Robert will be sharing his thoughts on betraying Ashlyn, reflect on some Guiding Light memories, and also share his passion for performing on stage. It is an honor and pleasure to welcome him to the show. Robert Newman, welcome to Hollywood and Beyond. Hi, Stephen. Thank you very much for having me. So nice to have you here today. Uh, Thank you for this wonderful opportunity to speak with you. I really appreciate it. It's um, happy to be here. I appreciate the opportunity as well. well you are most welcome. I was so impressed with your performance on The Young and the Restless. I am here in Cincinnati. Uh, where are you joining me from today, by chance? I'm actually in uh, 
right outside of Kalamazoo, Michigan, in Augusta, Michigan, at the um, Barn Theater. I am uh, currently uh, involved in the musical uh, Rock of Ages here. I have been for a couple of weeks playing the character of Dennis Dupree. And uh, we're closing up the show on Sunday. I'll be heading home to Stanford, Connecticut, where I live, on, uh, on Monday. I'm glad you brought that up because that was the first thing I was going to ask you about. Uh, it looks like a super fun production, uh, Rock of Ages, and uh, that is great that you have another week to go, and I want to continue to wish you the best on that. Um, you seem to have an association with the Barn Theater. Is that correct? Yeah, it goes back uh, uh, decades, really, Uh and this will get a little bit into my history for your listeners anyway, you know, in, um, I was born and raised in Los Angeles and, uh, I, uh, took a, my degree in theater in 1981 at, at, uh, Cal state university at Northridge, uh, in LA. And, um, right after that, I came here to Michigan for a season of summer stock theater, working as an apprentice, uh, and getting my equity card by the end of the season. And that was right here at the Barn Theater. So that is pretty much where I started my career. My first um, actual paycheck as an actor happened right here at the Barn Theater back in the summer of 1981. Uh, and, um, and since then, I've come back um, several times over the years. And now it's become almost a yearly journey for me where it, 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 I think of it as my theater home. It's a place I can come where I know everyone involved. Um, I know the um, producer and his wife, Brendan and Penelope Brigazzi very well. And, um, and I just can play a bunch of different kinds of roles here that I might not play elsewhere. And um, it, it's really been a, uh, uh, a great source uh, for me to work on my craft and to try on different, uh, different characters. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's just a, a 41 years ago, now that I think about it, 41 years ago. That is amazing. That yeah. is something else. Well, you may have actually answered a, a portion of this with your, okay. your last few comments, but I would still like to ask, Robert, what do you love the most about performing in front of a live audience? You know, I, I, I do a little bit at the, uh, they have a bar show after every performance, and um, I've been speaking in that bar show, and occasionally I just talk about my, my love of the craft, I talk about supporting theater, and one of the ways I've been talking about it recently has been, um, it's been this, that, you know, having done this role on Young and the Restless, coming back to daytime for a short time, I've been thinking a lot about the difference between working on television and working on stage and why I'm such a theater hound. I really am through and through. It's where I was trained in the first place. And even though I spent 28 years spending, you know, playing Joshua Lewis on The Guiding Light uh, on television, it's still theater is the place where I feel most at home. I, I really do. And um, and I was thinking about why that might be and, and what the differences are. Uh, and I think the really fundamental difference for me with live theater is that we all gather together in that space. In this case, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a theater that seats about 400 people. Uh, and by we all, I mean, all of the actors, all of the technicians, all of the people on both sides of the, uh, equation, the backstage and on stage, but the audience as well. We all come together in this space to tell a story, basically, is what it is. And to tell a story in real time, right now. Not something that we shot five weeks ago or six months ago, but something right here and now. And everything that happens on that stage uh, happens in real time. Um, the things that go right and the things that go wrong all happen in real time. And we all deal with them together. The performers and the audience together deal with things. When we're doing something like Rock of Ages, like I'm doing right now, it's a, it's a very funny piece. It's a really fast moving musical based on the music of the 1980s. Uh, and I feel like there's this unspoken agreement between us and the audience, right? We, we say a line in a certain way and they laugh. We uh, sing a lyric in a certain way and they may cry. 
you know, we do some like extraordinary moments. There's a moment when a character comes jumping into my, onto my shoulder and I lift him straight up in the air, uh, <laughs> you know, like an airplane. And the audience just goes, wow, that's fantastic. You know, kind of thing. <laughs> that all happens right here and right now with all of us. And, and so the audience becomes in a way, part of our performance. It's like breathing. We're breathing together. You know, again, that the line lands, the laughter happens, the moment happens, everything happens right then and there. And I think that that's what draws me so strongly to working on stage versus working on film or, or, or television. Uh, you know, of course you have the crew there when you're shooting on the soap opera or whatever, you have your other actors there, but you don't really have that give and take that you have with the audience in real time, in the real moment. Very nice. Well, I certainly hope that I can uh, be fortunate enough to see you on the stage someday. Um, you know, I'm here in, in Cincinnati, Ohio, so it's not necessarily too far to drive yeah. up there to Michigan. Well, yeah, it'd be I, well worth it. I do regional theater all around the country. You never know when I'm going to land in Cincinnati, Ohio. It may happen. Well, we'll I'll certainly keep an eye out for you. Yeah. I would really enjoy that. Now, Robert, I'm wondering, since uh, you've experienced so many stage productions over the decades, really, I'm sure you've also experienced those moments that don't go as planned or or was in the script. Maybe uh, the other actor skipped over pages of dialogue or just forgot the words or someone falls. Have you experienced those mishaps along the way as well? Well, of course I have. And, and honestly, so does every single stage performer out there. I, I think we all think, as consumers at least, the consumers think that whatever show they're seeing, whether it's Hamilton on Broadway or whether it's, uh, you know, some small show at some small theater in your local, you know, in your town, uh, things go right and things go wrong almost every single night on stage. Mm -hmm. uh, they just do. And but they have to be dealt with in real time. And frequently the audience isn't even aware of things that have gone wrong. I was doing a production a few years ago of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? opposite the great Kim Zimmer, who played Reva Shane on The Guiding Light for many years. Uh, we were in this very small theater in Nantucket, on the island of Nantucket. And um, uh, I remember one night I was off stage, and uh, suddenly I heard a cue line for me to re-enter, even though I knew I wasn't re-entering for several more minutes. And I bolted out there and bang, entered you know, pretty much right on the money. It turned out that somehow the actors on stage, Kim and one of the other two actors playing the younger, uh, the, the, the young man and the young woman in the show had sort of skipped over like five pages of dialogue just magically. They just sort of <laughs> jumped to something else. And suddenly this, this moment, cause there's not a lot of time off stage for George and who's afraid of Virginia Woolf. Suddenly this time I had off stage was truncated and bang, I had to just be in there. You know, we're not, and we don't go back and fix those five pages. They're just gone. But the audience that night for that performance, they had no idea what was going on there for the most part. You know, people don't really know the script that perfectly for a show like that. And, uh, you know, that thing happened. It was fixed. Nobody was the wiser. We went on with the show. Um, I remember, too, uh, I was doing a production of the play Picnic many, many years ago. I mean, decades ago. And uh, there was a bit where I ran up to the front porch and hit those steps and vaulted over the picket fence and uh, exit. And uh, as I hit the steps, the steps disintegrated beneath my feet. They just broke into a million pieces. My body continued to move up and over the picket fence, but I landed it looked to the audience, it looked like I landed dead center on my crotch on the picket fence, which <laughs> oh, didn't, no. but I landed kind of on my upper thigh. And later the set designer had said to me uh, that she was so thankful because in, in one of the earlier rehearsals, she was watching me do that. And the picket fence was picketed like to a point, you know, like a picket fence would be. Uh -huh. And she had decided at that time to round them all down in case something happened. <laughs> so I, I was injured, but not halfway bad as injured as you think. And that actually stopped the show for a moment because I, I did fall and had we had to take a minute to sort of get things restarted. It was right near the end of Act One. 
we just dropped the curtain. And then when we began again, you know, after intermission, we went ahead and took the intermission. Then we started a few minutes later. So those kind of things happen all the time on stage. But like I said, they have to be dealt with in real time. On television, on the soap, you'd cut, you'd restart, you'd, you'd reshoot the scene just like that. And nobody would ever be the wiser. But there's something really extraordinary about those kinds of things, too. Well, I really enjoyed those answers. Thank you. And and that's part of the fun, isn't it? Mishaps. And, it and, is. And like your story that you shared. Yeah. Um, that's part of the fun and excitement. Uh, I would like to ask, though, do you find yourself when you perform on stage, Robert, let's say like, like right now, but you have multiple nights, right? M- multiple showings. Uh, do you like to mostly keep it the same night after night when you find what it is that you want to uh, do in a scene or in a moment? Or do you like to here and there try something else, tweak it and try something different? Well, to me, it's because it's alive. It's constantly moving and shifting. Hmm. You know, I'm a, I think of myself as a very specific maker of choices when I work on stage or on television. I'm I'm very specific about why I'm doing something. But the execution of that why uh, can be done in so many different ways without changing the script and without changing the story. I'm I'm pretty locked into word for word when I'm doing a a particularly a play because a play is a finished public uh, published piece. For the most part, most of the plays that I do, they're finished, published pieces. And so I feel like that's the text. That's what we stay with. And a show like Rock of Ages, there's a bunch of ad-libbing that goes on in a show like Rock of Ages because it's pretty loose anyway. But, you know, certainly for something like uh, La Mancha or Sweeney Todd or something, I'm not going to be trying to outright Stephen Sondheim, you know, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... Uh, so I'm not talking really about necessarily ad-libbing dialogue, but but I do think that I'm an actor who believes that there's there is not it's not as if there's a single way that this moment must be performed for it to be perfect. I believe that there are ten different ways to play any given moment in any given play. Some of those choices are better than other choices, but uh, there's a lot of ways to do things. So again, back to the whole live audience piece of this, the audience itself can can cause a performance to shift and change in the way it's performed. And I think this is why uh, theater actors who have done, you know, the same play eight times a week for, you know, five years don't go completely insane doing that because things do shift and change every single night. And sometimes that even includes uh, the way you might play any given moment. I did a production of Gypsy opposite the great uh, actress Tova Felcha. And, uh, you know, she's one of the most gifted people I've ever been with on stage. And things were different, you know, constantly throughout the run of the show. Things just shifted and moved. Nothing that, you know, it's not like suddenly a, an actor comes out on the set, you know, in a, in a unitard wearing, riding a unicycle or something like that, you know, but it's <laughs> like things can move and shift. And that's the way they breathe and stay alive. For me, that's the way it works. Well, Robert, before we discuss some of your television work, I thought this was a really nice moment for me to ask. Did you know at a young age that you wanted to become an actor or why did you decide to become an actor when you look back? No, there was nothing in my youth that pointed towards doing what I do now for a living. Um, I, other than this, I grew up in this uh, pretty good size, fairly dysfunctional family. Right, I had three oh, brothers, okay. three sisters, uh, lots of divorce and remarriage in my family. You know, um, uh, a lot of you know this one doesn't talk to that one, and this. Mm-hmm daughter doesn't talk to this mother and you know a lot of these really like crazy things in my family that went on and so when I entered into uh, college uh, I was actually on the road Uh, I entered as a major in psychology because I was interested in human behavior and particularly I was interested in the field of uh, family dynamics Uh, because I had come from this large dysfunctional family and I always have been on this quest to sort of understand in a better way 
how we ended up that way and why we were the way we were. Um, so family dynamics, taking a degree in psychology, that made all the sense in the world to me. In my second year, I think, or my third year, my second year, I think, I took an acting class just on a whim as an elective to, to just get through those three credits for that particular piece of my degree, you know. Um, and I and it, it, just kind of, um, what the heck, why not? Let's see how this goes. And pretty quickly, I came to understand that um, I started looking at the works of Tennessee Williams and Eugene O'Neill and Edward Albee, and all of these guys were in fact writing about family dynamics, exactly the field that I was interested in. Uh, they were writing about um, the dysfunction of, of uh, particularly of American families. And uh, I just began to think to myself, well, this is really the same concept. This is the same idea. This is, these are men who, writers who are pursuing the questions I'm asking and trying to get answers to, maybe I'll just kind of shift over in this way. You know, I won't be sitting in an office opposite a patient working through issues, but there's ways I can portray characters uh, on stage or television and help people to understand more about themselves. And that is when I think theater and or television are working at their very best. It's when we're sort of looking uh, at a at a at a looking glass of ourselves, whether it's our our families or our society or our relationships, we're seeing something about ourselves up there on that stage. And and in the best of worlds, what's happening up there and the story that's being told is helping us to understand ourselves better. And that's really what drew me into becoming an actor. Uh, I was trained specifically, really, for the stage. Uh, I had no real interest in uh, television or film. Um, uh, and then after I graduated, as I said, I spent a season of summer stock here in Michigan playing several different roles. And then uh, I went off to New York for what was supposed to be a week or so and uh, auditioned for a soap opera. And I had never seen a soap opera in my life up to then. I had never acted on camera in my life up to then. But evidently, they liked what they saw, and they offered me a three-year contract to, to move to New York City and start working on The Guiding Light, playing the character of Joshua Lewis. And I said, okay, let's do that. <laughs> and the rest is history, as they yeah. often say. <laughs> well, yeah. before I ask you a, a, a few questions about uh, some memories of your time on The Guiding Light, um, and I'm looking forward to discussing your recent experience on The Young and the Restless, but I thought of an interesting question. It just popped in my head. I'm just wondering, did you ever have an actual conversation with the co-creator, co-producer, former head writer of YNR, Bill Bell, uh, years ago, perhaps at an awards ceremony, so to speak? Um, I was very curious if you ever actually had a conversation with him in person. I do not think Bill Bell and I ever met, no. Hmm. Sorry about that. No, that's all right. I was just wondering if somehow you, you may have crossed paths. You know how that can be at award yeah. ceremonies and, and whatnot. Well, I've, I've met a lot of people over the years, and I, I hate to say that I probably forgot more people, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that I probably had conversations with than, than I remember. I think I would have remembered something with Bill Bell. But uh, no, we never really, you know, they, they're in L.A. We were in New York. You know, we were existing in different uh worlds and um and I, you know i crossed paths with people here and there i knew gloria monte a little bit from general hospital because i worked on general hospital in 1986 for a few weeks and i knew uh, jill farron phelps uh way before she became an executive producer on guiding light or ynr i met her and worked with her more specifically on santa barbara the soap opera Santa Barbara, where I worked for a few weeks, also around 1985, 86. Um, but uh, I don't recall uh, any conversation with Bill Bell. No. Well, I'm sure he would have been very impressed and pleased with your performance, mm. if I may say so. <laughs> well, he, he was quite the master storyteller. 
Mm-hmm. No, no doubt about that. Well, how did this opportunity, I gave a description during the opening segment, but how did the opportunity to portray Ashton Locke first develop for you? Well, it, it was uh, it was a whirlwind, really. I mean, uh, this was, uh, we go back to January of this year, early January, uh, right after the holidays. And uh, in the evening, uh, around eight o'clock at night, my agent called on a, on a weeknight and said, uh, YNR is interested in having you come out for, um, uh, I think they initially talked about maybe four or five months. Uh, and we talked about that and whether or not I wanted to go out to LA for that time. My wife and I had a discussion about uh, the fact that I travel for theater all the time. I've generally gone for six to eight weeks when I do theater somewhere, but three or four months. And plus having grown up in Los Angeles, I have family that's still out there and I have good friends that I went to high school with and college. And we thought, well, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll we can certainly have this conversation. And so he got back to them and then they got back to him and suddenly they wanted to offer me a three year contract to play this role. And I said, no, hold on, just stop. You know, we got to put on the brakes right now. I'm, I, we were talking about a few months. Now we're talking about three years. I, this is not on my radar. I can't, you know, I'm a new grandfather. <laughs> I have a two-year-old grandson. Uh, oh, congratulations. Uh, thank you. And I have a four-month-old now grandson as well. Oh, wow. My son and, and daughter-in-law, Rocky Joseph, was born four months ago. I said, you know, I live on the East Coast. My, my home is in Connecticut. Our daughter lives nearby. My mom lives nearby. I, I'm not going to move to Los Angeles magically for three years. No, I, I basically said no. And so that became a discussion about what I, what time frame I might think about. And finally, uh, just a long story short, I, many back and forths over the weekend, because that was a Friday night, by the way, now that I think about it, that was a Friday night. So over the weekend, we began this process of back and forth conversations through my agent with, with the executive producer there at, uh, at YNR, uh, Tony. And, um, and finally we settled on a, a structure that would be a year long two, but more or less two, six month cycles with the idea being that, uh, if they stick with their original plan, their original plan was more or less to kill off the character after about another five or six months. Um, and, but if they shift and move some things around, then maybe I would stay longer. That was the idea. And so that all happened between Friday night at eight o'clock and Monday afternoon. And when we finally settled on it, uh, on this structure, uh, I had just a few days to get myself together because they wanted me there the following week. I had to fly on Saturday and they wanted me to start working on uh, that Wednesday of the next week. Uh, and they had, wow. they threw five episodes in three days at me in the first three days I was on the show, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. And, uh, it was fast and furious. You know, it was, uh, they, they had to replace, uh, Richard. I think there's been plenty of press about this idea that Richard was, uh, something about COVID. That's not my department. I don't really talk about it. It doesn't matter to me. It's not my, I don't know the details of it. It's, you'll have to interview Richard to talk about that, but sure. But, they had to replace this actor. They were in a bind and, uh, they asked me to come and play the role. And, uh, and that's, that's, that's how it started. Well, obviously you have decades of valuable television experience. And as we've discussed, theatrical experience, uh, that's in your favor. It sounds to me like they were looking for a veteran actor because it was a very important role and it's in the middle of a storyline, no less. It was really starting to gain some momentum as far as maybe his background goes right about the time you joined. Now, when you first arrived on day one on the set, did you get those old-fashioned butterflies just because it's the first day? Or, or, or did it kind of feel like, you know, hey, I've done this before. I'm ready to go. It was – I don't ever get butterflies. I'm, I'm not a I'm – I don't have any kind of – version of stage fright or anything like oh, that okay. you know i it, well i never have i don't know why that is really i 
I, I, there's a couple of roles that I played that I felt more nervous about uh, just because they were so like uh, when you're playing uh, Sweeney Todd, that's a pretty big deal, mm. you know, and uh, I, I felt probably more concerned about doing it well. Well, I don't know. That makes it sound like I don't I'm not concerned <laughs> about doing it as well, but. You know, maybe some something in that. Sure. I wouldn't say that I was in any way nervous. I was curious on the first couple of days at mm-hmm. YNR. I was, uh, but I was so immersed in, you know, they had sent me these five episodes to shoot, like I said, in three days. They'd sent them to me, uh, you know, a few days ahead of time. And so I was pretty well immersed in the uh, mechanics of memorizing uh, dialogue and creating this character on the spot. I had told them, I had a uh, Zoom meeting with uh, the head writer, uh, Josh Griffin, and uh, and Tony, the executive producer, uh, a few days before I left for Los Angeles, and we talked about what the the, the history of the character to this point, mm-hmm. which had only been a few months. I think that. Uh, Richard had started that show maybe, I don't know, six months earlier or something like that. So there was quite a bit of history on this character. They had, they had really laid quite a foundation for him in terms of background and also what actually happened with the character on the show. Uh, so I had so I, I made a lot of notes there. Um, I said to them at that point that I would prefer not to watch any of Richard's work. I, Meaning no disrespect to him, I just felt like if I were going to take this character, it had to be, I had to create this character in my own way, in my own voice, with my own mind and my own body, you know, and, and it wouldn't be helpful to me to see another actor portray this character. They agreed to that completely. They were fine with that. Uh, I did ask them to send me the last five scripts that the character appeared in before my first appearance. Because uh, I wanted to get just a sort of a, a, a very recent background for that character. And then every time, and then I just began my process. And the process for me was no different than the process I used on on uh, Guiding Light for all those years, really, in terms of how to work through dialogue and then work through the character and work through the moments of the scenes and figure out what I wanted to do here and, and uh, questions I had. I had a list of questions a mile long pretty much every week. And I would email Josh and say, hey, I'm, I have a scene with this character that I don't know anything about. Tell me about their background. And he would, in an email, just basically give me the background of my relationship with whoever. And, uh, and then I would build on how I wanted to uh, portray the character and do that scene based on those notes. And then I would, of course, work with the director, uh, directors and with the other actors. And we all would kind of come together and try to figure out where how to move forward uh, with this character. But uh, uh, it was a little um, abrupt to step into the middle of a character that had already been played. I'd never done that before. Um, but uh, Amelia, who played my wife, Victoria, was completely on board and so was Eric and everybody else and we just went forward and uh, it was actually uh, those first couple of weeks were pretty lovely I felt an enormous amount of support from everybody in those first couple of weeks I tell you what one of the things that I enjoyed the most about your performance on YNR was that you just had me guessing so much mm. you know, is he actually being honest you know with Victoria let's say Sure, I knew about the his background, and of course that would be red flags. But the moments when you're professing love to Victoria, or that you mm-hmm. know you're coming across as even a good guy, you know, I, I was really captivated because I still was never a hundred percent sure that he was either way until, of course, you know, as we got near the conclusion of the storyline. And I just wanted to commend you on that because I think that was what one of the fascinating elements to your performances, I felt like I was on a journey to find out the truth about Ashlyn. Well, I really appreciate you saying that. One of the things that um, Josh and I discussed at length was when is he being honest and when is he conning? You know, when is he conning somebody? And um, 
AC told me a couple things that were very helpful. One was that there were two, before I came onto the show, there were two very um, uh, influential events that had occurred in the life of Ashlyn Locke on camera. And one of them was the revelation that his son Harrison was not his real son, uh, was not his biological son. And, uh, and then finding out that, you know, in addition to that, that his wife had had an affair with this other guy. And then, and there, this other guy was Harrison's father. And that was something that really rocked Ashland's world and really started shifting the way that he was thinking about life. Uh, and then the second thing that he was pretty adamant about, and we agreed on was that even though the beginning of the relationship with Victoria was uh, part of a con, to be honest, that the unexpected piece of that was that he fell in love with her and, and that the love was real. I kept on really writing Josh on that question. Is the love he feels for Victoria a real thing or is that just part of his, you know, his way of doing business? I'm using air quotes here, you know, being the ruthless businessman kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, we really both felt that, uh, the, the strongest way to play the character was that the love was real. And, um, I play a lot of bad guys these days. I really do. Uh, and I always feel that, um, I try not to really distinguish between good guys and bad guys when I'm playing the character because, you know, bad guys don't think of themselves as bad guys. They just don't. You know, they, they, they think of themselves as, uh, like, I think Ashland doesn't think of himself as a criminal or a con man. I think he sees, he saw himself as a very strong businessman who would do whatever it takes to achieve the goals of power and money. And, uh, and I feel that I personally feel that those amongst us who have achieved that, you know, multi-millionaire or billionaire status probably have done a lot of really questionable ethical and moral things in their journey to get there. That's just a belief that I have about people who amass that kind of money. There was probably a lot of dead bodies in the wake, not literally dead bodies, but a lot of people walked over, a lot of lives ruined, a lot of, you know, advantage taken and, and, you know, when they can and things like that. And to me, that's Ashland. And then also facing the Newmans, even though I don't know the history of Young and the Restless because I've never watched the show, but I know enough about it to know that Victor had a very sordid history and that, uh, that all of them did, that Adam had a very sordid history, that they've all done these, you know, questionable, terrible things in their past lives. So, you know, Part of my approach was, is Ashland really all that different than Victor? You know, they're both kind of the same guy. Uh, but in this case, Ashland's the bad guy because he's, uh, I guess, I don't know, conning the daughter, Victoria, or something. But, you know, mm-hmm. these are these were injured. And to me, they were interchangeable characters almost on that level that they've all done, you know, terrible things in their past to achieve either power or money, which is what a lot of people do in real life. So it sounds like you're describing Victor Newman himself with some of the descriptions. And that was another element that fascinated me was that the more that you were on the show, Robert, the more I realized that Ashlyn was really in his own right and equal to Victor Newman when it came to power and Mm -hmm. And stepping over that line to 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 achieve what it whatever it is they wanted to achieve, I have to tell you, Robert. I personally thought, as things heated up between your character and Victor's, it was fascinating and gripping television. I, it was really really good, and uh, okay. even the moments when both of you were calm, you could just feel the tension. And I just wanted to say, I just thought that you did an excellent job with that. And what was it like working with Eric? And I remember the scene when you are in bars at the jail and he grabs you and pulls you forward. I mean, you got to see all sides of Eric, didn't you, during your time on Y&R? 
Yeah, I mean, Eric, you know, I have nothing but respect for Eric Braden. You know, he, uh, you know, I was a big fan of Rap Patrol when I was a kid. And Eric played a pretty significant role on that show. And, uh, yes. you know, I knew him from combat. You know, I, I kind of grew up watching Eric, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so to be working with him on Young and the Restless was really kind of a really out of bodyish kind of interesting experience, you know. And, uh, but, you know, and he, but he's really, uh, he, I'll say this, he makes very definite choices. And, uh, He's sharp as he can be, uh, even though he's getting, you know, he's getting up there in the years, but he is completely there. And uh, he's uh, he's a really great uh, scene partner. I'll put it that way. You know, and we had lengthy, lengthy discussions about these two characters being sort of mirrored images of each other. And that's what makes them dislike each other so much, you know. And yet at the same time, and I'd, I remember saying this uh, in one of the scenes we were doing that where I was facing off against all the Newmans in, in the office, I remember, I remember saying, but Victor's the only one that he cares about. Victor's the only one that he's afraid of. Victor's the only one that he respects. You know, all of those things came into play with Victor Newman. Well, I'll tell you what, Robert, that rivalry between the two characters reminded me of the good old days when Jack Abbott and Victor Newman were uh, in a just this. I'm sure you've heard about the feud. It, it was it's legendary. And let me just tell you, you talk about intensity. I mean, those two would really, really go at it. And it, it brought back some of that to me as a viewer. And I was really appreciative of that. Um so I thought I'd ask uh, Peter, of course, having worked on All My Children in New York, had you um, uh, uh, encountered Peter during your time uh, when you were working on The Guiding Light? Oh, yeah. Peter and I are friends. Peter gotcha. and I have known each other for several decades. Uh, Peter and I bonded over, I think I think we bonded at some kind of an appearance, uh, maybe a charity golf thing or something like that. And Peter and his wife and my my wife, Britt, and I, the four of us have sat down together at, at uh, you know, and to break bread, that kind of thing. Uh, Peter and I also had several conversations when I was uh, on the national board for uh, uh, SAG-AFTRA for the Actors Union, when I was uh, a national vice president of that union for actors in the category of actors and performers. And uh, when we were merging SAG and AFTRA together, Peter and I had conversations at that time about merging the two unions together. So Peter and I go pretty far back. And one of my favorite things about coming on the show, uh, at least for a short time, was to um, to be working in the same studio with Peter. We, we only had a couple of scenes together, if I recall. But, uh, but he was one of the very first people to come to me. In fact, Peter called me after I was cast, before I even left Connecticut to head to LA, Peter called me and, uh, and we talked for probably 30 minutes or so <laughs> about the show. He, you know, I had a few questions with him for him about, uh, the shooting style and the scheduling and things mm-hmm. like that. But, you know, he just welcomed me with open arms to that show. The other person I've known for a while, uh, is Christian LeBlanc. Uh, we've been, you know, we just run into each other a lot. We, we joke around a lot and, uh, we have a very, uh, friendly relationship with each other. And, uh, uh, he and I chatted quite a bit during my time there as well. Well, I'm, I'm sure they were both equally excited to have you on board. No doubt about that. And working with Amelia, you know, from mm-hmm. my viewpoint, I just think she is perfect as the modern day businesswoman. Like she looks mm-hmm. like she should be behind that desk. She's also, in my estimation, I, I think of her as a very bright and intelligent character, which I also find appealing. Mm-hmm. Obviously, very beautiful, but she's just so skilled. And I thought that both of you had just very intriguing chemistry, both romantically, but also when Ashlyn was trying to convince her of something. I I often wondered, what was she thinking? What were you thinking? It really played out well. Uh, What was your experience like working with Amelia? 
Well, she, you know, she had her work cut out for her there at the very beginning because she had really, you know, she had been working a lot with Richard and uh, developed a, whatever kind of working relationship she had with them. And then all of a sudden, one day, this other guy comes in to play the role. And uh, who sh- and we had never met before, before that. We did speak on the phone briefly before my first day. Uh, we just chatted for, I don't know, 20 minutes or something on the phone about stuff, about life. Um just to get to know each other a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she, you know, I was throwing a lot of things at her, her, to her credit, I was throwing a lot of stuff at her that, that I think she was not experiencing with Richard in terms of just the way I was working towards portraying this character. And, uh, man, she just took it all. She just, uh, <laughs> she was right there and, and, yes. uh, right on board with me. And, uh, she just, uh, uh, she, whatever adjustments she had to make to working with an entirely different human being today than she was working with a few days ago, she did it seamlessly, I think. And, uh, you know, uh, I think we were really one of the sad pieces to me of, of, uh, my shorter term there was that, uh, I think we were really, really hitting our stride right around the mm-hmm. time, <laughs> right yes. around the time left the show. So, <laughs> you know, and I don't think there was really much of a future for those two characters. I don't know. That's all up to the fans to decide what they think might've happened between blah, blah, blah. But, but, uh, you know, it, it seemed like a pretty broken relationship by the time, you know, I, I left the show, but, um, yes. but I felt like Amelia and I as scene partners were really hitting our stride. I also enjoyed working a lot with Mark Grossman who plays, uh, uh, Adam, Yes. Uh, I, I, I liked the scenes that they were writing between the, these two characters. Um, mm-hmm. They were sort of bitchy, bantery, kind of snarky back and forths with each other. And, and I think both of us just really enjoyed that relationship. He was, he was a lot of fun to work with. Robert, I have a, a final question for you about your experience on Y&R. Mm-hmm. Um, it really has to pertain with Harrison. As we, as we get near the conclusion of the storyline, I remember your character saying, if I could just have, you know, a final goodbye, if I could just have some time with him so that I mm-hmm. can just say goodbye, I will leave town. And it truly seemed utmost sincere. I mean, I, I really believed, like, that's the last straw. You will leave. And you were doing such a good job showing this uncom- uncomfortable position of Ashland feeling de- deflated, like defeated almost. Uh, I remember many scenes, you almost seemed like you were quivering in your voice talking about Harrison. I just wanted to say I was very moved by that. No, thank you. And, and my question is this. It, it may be hypothetical, but you are the man behind Ashland. Let's say they would have said, okay, we'll give you a couple hours, half a day. Do you feel Ashlyn then would have left town and none of that other stuff would have happened? Or was it because they said no, that it just kind of finally sent him over the edge? I don't think it was the no that sent him over the edge. So, so to answer your question, yes, I actually think he would have left town. It doesn't mean he wouldn't have returned, you know, down the road at some point. It doesn't mean he would have, wouldn't have still continued to pursue a relationship with the young man, he thinks, listen, I thought of that whole thing in this way. You know, if my son's, my son's name is Connor, Connor Newman. Uh, he was born in 1989. If when he was five years old, if somebody suddenly showed up in my world and said, Connor is not really your son, mm-hmm. you know, four or five years old, you've really bonded with that child. I have as I said earlier, two grandsons now that are two years, about two years old and about four months old, I'm completely and utterly bonded with those boys already. So four or five years into it, if somebody came to me when Connor was four years old and said, he's not your biological son, we're going to take him away. And then added, by the way, you're never going to see him again. It Mm. would have completely and utterly devastated me. And it would have completely devastated Connor, I think. Yes. You know, they, they brought up that piece, you know, how does this affect Harrison, which I thought was always thought was a really important piece to this. You know, it's not just Ashland being punished and kept from Harrison. Mm-hmm. Harrison is having to deal with this whole thing of a man that he saw as his father for the first four years of his life. Now, suddenly, 
he can't see him anymore. You know, that was a pretty big deal. So I think, but in this case, I think, yes, the answer to the quick answer to your question is, yeah, he would have, I think he would have said his goodbyes to Harrison. He would have kept his word and he would have left town and nothing, none of that would have happened. It wasn't the no that threw him over the edge. It was the setup in the park and being sent to jail for trying to see his son and more or less being arrested even in front of his son. Yes, Harrison was over there, but the cop was here and, you know, the whole thing. I think that those were the things that were putting him over the edge. I think being conned by Victoria twice put him over the edge. I think him accepting the fact that Victoria never doesn't really love him back, I think, put him over the edge. I think all of those things put him over the edge and and drove him to those those final scenes at uh, Victoria's house. Well, if it makes you feel better, Robert, I was fooled, too, when Victoria, uh, <laughs> you know, when she uh, did that about face in, in the Big Apple, I, I was fooled as a viewer. It, it really took me a while to realize what was at play here. So I could just imagine how your character felt. And I just wanted to say again, I was very touched by those moments with Harrison. And, and I just, it, it, I, I mean, thinking about it now almost makes me teary eyed because I know that that was the most sincere part of Ashland that I saw was the love for his son. And you described it perfectly why that would be so significant. Well, thank you for sharing your young and restless memories and congratulations on a memorable performance, one that I won't soon forget. I just had a couple questions about The Guiding Light, if you don't mind. And you mentioned your audition, but I'm wondering, was there anything else to your audition for Joshua that stands out? Or was there a story there? Or was it pretty standard, so to speak? Well, uh, it wasn't standard to me. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty big, wasn't it? <laughs> but uh, no, I, I had, you know, as I said, I just come off, uh, you know, four months in Michigan of summer stock. Um, uh, so I was drained and I think I was way down in my weight and that kind of thing because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I was, you know, I was living off of probably, uh, you know, hot dogs and whatever. But, um, <laughs> You know, I I was just supposed to be in New York for a few days, and uh, my agents, I had agent an agent who had offices both in L.A. and New York, and when I met some folks in the New York office, they were like, hey, we want to send you out on this. And uh, at that time, Betty Ray, the great Betty Ray, was the casting director for Guiding Light. Mm. And, um, you know, I, I went in and read with her for this character of Joshua, and uh and she immediately ran me down the hall to Doug Marlin's office, who was the head writer on the show, and said, I want you to meet Robert, and we're going to read for you. And we read. And so they handed me this six-page script and asked if I could come in tomorrow to screen test. And uh, having never acted on television in my life, I was like, yeah, sure, whatever. And so <laughs> I went home and memorized six pages of dialogue and uh, went in the next day. And there were about uh, six of us there testing including uh, Scott Bryce, uh, and uh, who also tested for the part of uh, Joshua Lewis on The Guiding Light. And um, out of that audition, they cast me as Josh, and they cast Scott as, uh, I'm going to go with Craig Montgomery, I think was the name of his character, and as the world turned that he played for something like 25 years. Um, but um, And then they gave me uh, eight days to go home to Los Angeles where I had not been in four months, basically pack up my apartment, get rid of my apartment, get rid of my car, put together a few boxes and move to New York city and start work on a soap opera. And I did that. And I remember my first day there, uh, I was, I, I was staying temporarily in the times square motor hotel right at 43rd street and eighth Avenue. And that's right around the corner from the old 42nd street, which was like all pimps and prostitutes and drug dealers. Oh my! And, uh, you know, and, and I remember I got there early at a 7am call. I came in early and I remember thinking to myself, God, wouldn't it be crazy if they were like, Oh no, no, we didn't want that guy. We wanted that <laughs> other guy. And, uh, I got there early and the guard didn't have my name down oh, and he didn't oh. know me. And the director, Bruce Berry, who became a, a lifelong friend of mine over the years, uh, who had directed me in the screen test, 
came walking up and he said, Robert, so good to see you. Welcome to the show. And he got, he actually got me into the, to the studio and, uh, and I shot those for that, those first few days, you know, that first day. And, uh, <laughs> I just saw those scenes not long ago. They're, they're on YouTube somewhere. I think oh, my first, I check my first episode. Yeah. 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 Meeting my sister, Trish played by Rebecca Holland and okay. working with a couple of other people. Yeah. It seemed like back in the 80s, Robert, even though I became a Y&R and B&B viewer, I was really a big fan of Bill Bell's style of production and writing. Anytime Guiding, The Guiding Light was on, it seemed like you were on it. <laughs> and uh, the, even back then, I was impressed with your work. Well, once Kim Zimmer came into the picture about a, about a year and a half later, and Josh and Reva were born, then, uh, yeah, it was... It was uh, it was a great run. I, I always tell people it was, you know, it was a great way to raise my children. You know, soap opera work, you, you almost never work on weekends. You, you frequently have at least one, if not two weekdays off a week mm -hmm. because you're only in as many as uh, days of the week as you are in episodes. So if you're in three episodes this week, you're only in three days this week. So I got a lot more time with my children than most dads get. Uh, I say to fans who sought me on the street today, I say thank you for helping put my children through college because that's what they did. Um, and, uh, you know, it was a really good run. I remember doing an interview with 60 Minutes when the show went off the air. And Mike Wallace asked me, uh, uh, not Mike Wallace, Molly Safer asked me, uh, you know, are, are, are you sad that the show's going off the air? Are you upset by it? And I said, you know, I signed a three-year contract 28 years ago. I don't think I have a lot to complain about. You know, if only all of my gigs would work out as well as this one did. <laughs> I would yeah, never, you'd be all right, wouldn't you? <laughs> I would never be auditioning again. You know, so uh, it was a great run. It was a great way to raise my kids. It was a great way to spend my, you know, three decades of my life, and uh, uh, you know, now I spend. 99% of my time on stage and then doing exactly what I love the most. Well, I'm very happy for you. And I thought I would uh, end by asking, uh, was there a favorite storyline that you felt challenged you the most during your time on The Guiding Light? Oh, well, those wouldn't be the same thing. The challenge me the most would not be the same as my favorite. It might even be my least favorite. Ah, okay. Uh, the cloning storyline where Josh clones his dead wife. Oh. and grows her from birth to 40 with a rapid growth formula in six weeks. And then she, anyway, oh that, that was a ridiculous fiasco storyline. Mm -hmm. I enough fans remember that. Um, they remember it in a positive way now, but I remember we got tons of awful fan mail about that. And it was, it was really difficult to do that story and, and make it work. Um, but Kim and I often talk about what we call the cat on the hot tin roof storyline, which was way back when Reva married Josh's father, HB. And in anger, Josh went screaming out in his car and got in a terrible accident and was paralyzed from the waist down and then recuperated at HB and Reva's house. And, uh, uh we, we call that cat on the hot tin roof with uh, big daddy and cat and brick and, you know. Um, and working with the great Larry Gates as my father and, uh, Jordan Clark playing my brother, Billy, that was just a magical time at Guiding Light. It really was. It was really extraordinary people and, and great writing. And if I could sneak one last question in, I should end this way. It makes sense. Working with Kim all of those years. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, what was that like? And what is it like to work with someone so closely for so long? I imagine the two of you would be very comfortable working together as time went by. We were. You know, the, the thing, you know, Kim and I do hold a place in soap opera history. You, you, any list of the top five or even the top three greatest couples in the history of daytime would include Josh and Reva. They, it just would. I agree with you. No. And, uh, you know, they, they, I, are not a lot of soap opera actors who can say that, you know, uh, you know, uh, and have experienced that. And I'm sure we all kind of experience it in a different way, but, but really it comes down to, uh, trust, 
I think is the is the word I'm thinking of. It you you get to a point where you really trust each other so much uh, uh, that when that red light goes on, you really believe the story and you want to tell the story. I'm a, I must I always tell people I'm a storyteller. That's what I do. I tell stories through the characters I play through the words I say and through the lyrics I sing, I tell stories. That's what I want to do. That's what I'm interested in. And I think Kim and I both were interested in telling the story of Josh and Reva as much as it shifted and changed over the decades, years and decades that they, that they ran that story. Uh, we both wanted to tell the story and we both trusted that the other person would sort of hold up their end of that bargain, you know, that we would work together to tell this story. And we did. And uh, she's a force to be reckoned with. She's one of the great actresses, I think, of uh, certainly in daytime and, and, and anywhere, really. I think she's one of the great actresses of our time. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, occasionally we work together on stage now. And it's, it's fun. It's always fun. Well, Robert, I can't thank you enough for being so generous with your time and for sharing so many heartfelt memories. I really enjoyed listening to your thoughts on the craft of acting and, and, and what portraying a character means to you, whether it's in front of a camera or being on stage. So uh, thank you from the bottom of my heart. Uh, not only am I honored, but I just enjoyed every moment speaking with you. And I certainly hope I get to see you on the stage someday. Sounds good. Thank you so much, Stephen. This is Carrie Mitchum. Hollywood and Beyond podcast is produced, edited, and hosted by Stephen Brittingham. See you on another episode of Hollywood and Beyond. Thanks for listening.